Moncrief on News Talk. Now, when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began, a small number of Irish people went there. Some volunteered to fight, others to help with the humanitarian efforts. Finn Boyle went there with his camera. He spent five months in Ukraine visiting areas where the fighting has been the worst and following some of those Irish people. He plans to return to complete a documentary on that subject. Afternoon, Finn. Good afternoon, Sean. Thanks for having uh, me on. Uh, when, when you first, uh, the first time you arrived in Ukraine, was it? were there a large amount of Irish people there? Were there any Irish people there? Uh, well, in fact, I kind of struck a gold mine pretty quickly uh, within about 48 hours of crossing the border. I heard about um, a bunch of ambulances being sent out by the HSC that were due to arrive within the next 24 hours. And actually on my first day, I was sitting in the centre of Lviv, wondering where to start, what route to take, who to talk to, to go to the media centre. And I pulled uh, a beer out of my bag. And at the time, I didn't know that alcohol had been banned in the country. <laughs> so I was, I'm sitting there with my press body armour on, there with all my backpack, my camera gear, sipping, nursing a beer. And all I hear is, hey, press man, in an Irish accent. Where'd you get that beer? Yeah. I turn around and it's a flat cap man from Wicklow. His name's Graham Hill, who was, uh, in fact, a mechanic on those ambulances. So that's how the story began and ended up filming with um, the Irish ambulances as they were uh, with him and the Irish ambulances. And that's, in fact, how I met Andrew Last, who has now become one of the protagonists in my film. Yeah. And Lviv at the time was kind of almost like a hub for a lot of the humanitarian aid that was coming in. Absolutely. I mean, it was a buzz of people. English was the de facto second language at the time. Uh, You heard almost more English than you did Ukrainian. Um, Full of humanitarians, you know, foreign fighters coming in, looking to join the the International Legion. Uh, you had f- press, everybody there kind of wondering what, where to go, what to do next, which avenue was safe, because it was the 12th of March, remember, it's less than three weeks into the war, and we nobody knew whether there would be a Ukraine the next day. I mean, Kiev mm-hmm. was three quarters of the way surrounded at the time. Nobody knew if, if the government would fall, if Zelensky would be captured. So everybody was kind of buzzing around each other, the press centre, wondering where to go, how to do it. And I guess the Irish ambulances kind of became like a focal point for Anglophone speakers, Americans, yeah. Canadians, Irish, to kind of figure out what to do next and where to go. So yeah. that's basically where I started. Uh, and were, were there any Irish turning up to volunteer to fight? Um, there uh, there were a couple. Um, uh, one, in fact, is in the process of uh, for volunteering for fighting, uh, doing drone operations. He is a part of my film, but he doesn't want to be named right now sure. uh, for security reasons until he's home and until uh, what I could say or what I could show would compromise him and his team's security. So, but there is an Irishman fighting out there at the moment. Uh, in terms of uh, my film, in terms of the characters who really touch the front line, another one would be Dayton Brennan. He worked for the Mozart Group, another ex-Irish soldier, 20 years in the Irish Defence Force. Now, explain what the Mozart Group is, because people, they'll have heard of the Wagner Group, but not... Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, the Mozart Group no longer exists anymore. They imploded Ah. in January, uh, but all of last year, they were doing two things. They were training the Ukrainian military, and they were uh, doing civilian evacuations from frontline villages. And Dayton Brennan, uh, our very own Irish man from Meath, he was the head of that team. Uh, and doing civilian ev- evacs within small arms fire range of, of mm. Russian positions. And due to the fact Wagner is a German composer, also Mozart is a German composer, <laughs> so there was a kind of a tit-for-tat kind of duel between the two, although they stand in stark uh, opposition in terms of what they actually do. Mozart's only about 40 individuals at the time. But the Russian propaganda would say that the reason they weren't so successful on the battlefield is because Mozart are basically American special forces and trained by NATO 
and they're in the ranks of thousands of of soldiers they're fighting when in reality it's just you know an Irish man from Meath uh, uh, with body armor carrying bags of old yeah. babushka grannies and they're, and they're not they're not armed they were no, there unarmed, just unarmed, to, unarmed, yeah. unarmed guys so Dayton kind of represents uh, he basically showcases the strength of the Irish humanitarian spirit as does Andrew who was on your show last week and that's kind of the whole por- purpose of the film is to chronicle the Irish experience in Ukraine right. uh, while showcasing that nothing is stronger than the heart of an Irish volunteer yeah well, t- well tell us a bit more about Andrew Andrew, uh, I met Andrew in uh, March, so almost a year ago now. He was part of the original crowd that brought out the ambulances. Uh, his motivations for being in Ukraine, his wife is Ukrainian, uh, and his father-in-law, so the wife's uh, father, was uh, in hospital in Luhansk, which is uh, Donetsk or Luhansk People's Republic, so separatist controlled since 2014. Mm. His father-in-law was very sick and he had to get him out, and that was his motivations for going. Uh, I guess he thought in some ways that the, the, the ambulance charity could help with this factor. Uh, when that wasn't moving on that, that way, he kind of uh, went his own way and tried to find other avenues to get his father-in-law out, which he was eventually successful in doing in, in May. And it's a fantastic story uh, about they got some ambulance crowd in the separatist region to drive the father-in-law over the border to Russia. A separate ambulance crew, private ambulance crew, brought him to Belarus, handed him over to the Belarusians, and the Belarusians drove him over the border to Poland, where Andrew and his uh, his Ukrainian wife were waiting for for Victor to to. And then Jeez. he was evacu- Then he was evacuated in a the one of the Irish Air Force planes with the medical team on board. Mm. Uh, so Victor and, and and his daughter, Andrew's wife, were then flown back to, to Ireland. And poor Andrew had to drive the whole way home. <laughs> yes. uh, which would be a hell of a drive. Plus, uh, that is an amazing story, getting yeah. uh, uh, Belarusians to cooperate and all yeah, of this. Yeah, it kind of just shows you that despite, you know, as much as politics wants to divide us, the, you know, the core element of humanitarianism is to help each other regardless of, uh, of political identity. Uh, and that's kind of what my film is all about, showcasing... What the incredible strengths the humanitarians go through, the incredible risks they put themselves at, whether it be Dayton, Brennan, whether it be Andrew. And, you know, I've even lost a friend, a humanitarian friend out there. Um, maybe you heard about him, uh, uh, Chris Parry. He died in January. Mm. Um, himself and another volunteer, Andrew Bagshaw, they were killed in Solidar on the 6th of January. Um, I mean, I can read you the last messages on my phone from, from, from Christopher. He's an amazing character. I don't know how many hundreds of people he rescued from the young, the sick, the old, and the last day I was with him, he pulled um, a six-year-old boy with cerebral palsy out of Bakhmut under fire. Uh, his mother had abandoned him to his granny, and the granny was so immobilized, could barely move and look after the kid. And this is the type of... And then he drove him six hours to Dnipro and put him into state care, and the next morning back into the cauldron. So this is the kind of the risks mm. the volunteers are putting themselves through, and, you know, the, those stories need to be told. So. Yeah. You, uh, you, you, how soon after the Russian forces had been repelled from around Kiev did you go in there? Uh, pro- I arrived in Kiev on the 23rd, 23rd of, um, of March uh, and Kiev was liberated on the 1st of April. Mm. Um, so I was one, one full week in Kiev um, while the city was, uh, we arrived in on the, the, the only open avenue which was the southwest. The Russians had encircled it on three sides. Although they didn't have, they ran out of steam and were unable to push into the city. But I mean, of course, I didn't know that going in. And <laughs> I remember I, I traveled there with one of the Irish mechanics who worked on the ambulances. Me and him traveled there. He shadowed two foreign fighters, a Swedish sniper and an American Marine. And his intention was to join up uh, with them. Unfortunately, he didn't have the combat experience, so nobody would take him. And so eventually <laughs> he went home. Um, but basically, I shadowed him as this Irish story, part of the ambulances originally. And it was quite comforting to have an Irish 
voice narrating yeah. everything that I was seeing. We were all laughing and joking on the train going through, but I remember getting off the platform in Kiev and just the sound of shouting, even though it was 30 kilometers away, the ground was still shaking. Mm. I arrive at the police officer on the, just above the platform. He checks my passport, my press credentials. Uh, as he's flicking through my passport, uh, there was a huge explosion. A missile had hit the city only about two kilometers away from us. I ducked down. Uh, and the, the police officer didn't even flinch. He just yeah. kept flicking my passport as if it was just another mundane day at work. And that kind of gave me two things. It made me gave me a sense of security that, you know, I don't need to be immediately worried for my safety. But it also made me realize that, you know, despite having been to Mali, West Bank, Nagorno-Karabakh, a few other hot zones you could call, you know, I was still a war virgin. And what came later was, you know, a baptism of fire in terms of, of what I saw out there. It's... Mm. When you, yeah, because you did go out to Bucha and, 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 you know, the suburbs after yeah. the Russians had gone, but that would have been fairly shortly after they'd yeah, gone. Yeah. So the place was. 24 hours afterwards. I mean, I have, uh, I was in Bucha on the first day of the liberation and I went to some of the more remote villages further north where most of the press caravan was not located. Mm. And I was the first per- press person they actually encountered. So they were very open with their stories to me. So fresh, they had to get it off their chest. The Russians were only gone 12 hours before. Last people they saw were the Ukrainian army six hours prior. So the people really wanted to tell me their stories. Um, so I have on my hard drive, you know, war crimes, documented war crimes that will feature in my in the film. People living under that that type of occupation, being brutalized and, you know, with a 14-year-old boy being executed in front of the neighbors and family. Uh, but, you know, that was just a six-week occupation. You know, there are areas in Donbass that, are going through this for eight right months, now. eight Indeed. months, eight yeah. months, you know, and I've seen villages that have been literally obliterated from the map. Everyone likes to talk about Bucha and stuff because it's close proximity to Kiev, the capital, but nobody talks about Bogorodichna or Bilohorivka. You've never heard of them. These towns have population 10, 15,000 wiped off the map. Like, I mean wiped. There isn't a single, there isn't a sinner left, just the, the dogs abandoned on the streets. And even at points I had to get involved, put my camera down and just, bring kilos of dog food into these villages just to feed these 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 poor creatures like it's it, it's it's mental it's the biggest historical event that's happened since since the second world war and to, mm. you know to document it to be a part of it what effect does it have upon you because you've seen some pretty horrible things absolutely um i mean for me like i said before uh when you go out there with your camera and you have a mission you have a job you have a, a goal um you know you focus on your work you focus on doing the best you can you focus on everything job related and the camera itself is uh, my shield you know so i have this filter in between me and reality i i'm seeing everything in a 16 by 9 frame format and i'm focused on getting the framing the focus the lighting everything right so that kind of uh, becomes a shield for me in many ways and filters out a lot of the raw emotion um but as i said before it's uh, it's when i come and sit back in the edit mm-hmm. and i have to watch that stuff again and again and again and again and again and again and pick those best moments. That's where the emotions can come to the surface. And this is something that I wasn't prepared for. Um, but yeah, that's been the hardest aspect for it. But I'm driven by the fact that if I don't finish this job, there are stories that will never be told. And that's my motivating factor. And I, will, I won't stop until it's done. And, yeah. uh, you know, I owe it to those people who trusted me with their stories. To, to get it out there and make sure people see it. When do you hope the film will be finished? Uh, I'm knocking on a lot of producers' doors right now, trying to secure funding to go back out for another story to film with Andrew and uh, to film with some other people that I can't name right now. But, um, yeah, there's kind of the climax of my film still has to happen yet, and I hope, I mean, 
we're currently in the thaw of the of the winter in Ukraine. The real fighting will start again in in um, uh, in the spring or mm. in the early summer. Um, so that's kind of the idea of my plan on when to go back, basically, before okay. I go back. Uh, well, um, uh, good luck with that and stay safe in Boyle and thanks a million. Thanks a million for having me on, Sean. Moncrief, weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.